and welcome to What Goes Around once again. I am Eamon Murtar. And I'm Deb Grant, accompanied, as you can probably hear in the background, by some lovely builders having a chat and sounds like hammering some kind of chisel uh, into something far too close to my house. This is true. And I am happy to report that I too have some lovely building action going on. It's like that old Tom Waits song where he goes, what's he building in there? <laughs> so, uh, you know, anyway, it all adds to an ambient noise that, you know, puts the listener in a nice position. Builders in what stereo. We... <laughs> That's what you came here for, isn't it? <laughs> That's what we want. Down on the end of the line. Anyway, uh, what's on the show this week? This week, we have Lucy O'Brien talking about her new book, Lead Sister, which is all about Karen Carpenter. It is indeed, and she's a lovely lady to talk to. And I have talked to the King of Bristol. Yes, Mr. Jeff Barrow of Portishead has had a big long chat with me all about Vader Records and the Bristol scene and growing up in Portishead. And yeah, it's a really good one. You're going to enjoy this. Yeah, come on. That's pod. Come on, builders. You're coming too. Yeah, yeah come on. Yeah. <laughs> Join the party. Oh, bring the plasterers. That's what we good for a laugh. <laughs> Deb Grant, the D to the mofo in G. I'm talking about the Director General herself. What goes around? Not the Director General yet. <laughs> well, soon come, soon it'll come. come. It'll, it'll, it'll come. Um, well, I want to talk about a genre of music which I've spent my life avoiding. I'm not talking mm. about house music. I'm not quite there yet. I'm talking... Still? Yeah, <laughs> that's going to take a little while longer. Um, I'm talking about metal music which ah. is something that i feel like this is quite a common thing that people will be open-minded mm. about music but there'll be you know one or two pre- yes yeah exactly mm. they'll be sniffy about one or two genres and often one of those genres is metal and that was me up until amen quite recently mm. so i uh started uh, going out with this new fella his name is campbell he's mm. from new zealand He's lovely. I mean, it's tempting yeah, to just terrible. talk about him, but obviously that's yeah, not necessarily time. relevant. Little <laughs> love hearts and eyes. He's so cute. He's very handsome. Um, mm. But he is completely obsessed with music, makes these amazing playlists that he calls post-World War II playlists, where he picks a song <laughs> from every year. Um, and I went to visit him in New Zealand in uh, the new year, and we just drove around the place listening to these playlists, and they're amazing. But he is... He likes everything and when I say everything literally everything and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of many different genres including metal and there was a lot of metal on the playlist and I never expected to enjoy it and it was like a door has opened inside my mind and suddenly um suddenly the trousers yeah all of that I feel like I'm halfway yeah. there with the tattoos do you know what I mean no one would yeah, be surprised like to see me at a metal gate shooing in the, in, the, in the metal world well yeah he needs a big chopper now exactly exactly yeah exactly <laughs> um but yeah so he made me this special playlist to introduce me gently to all the different mm. types of metal the playlist can you some- be introduced gently to metal <laughs> I mean gently via the medium of Judas Priest. That's what I mean. Um, So, you know, I'm a Priest fan now. I might get my mullet back. That's quite tempting. I was also, I found a Judas Priest t-shirt online, which I really liked. And I sent it to Campbell for his approval. And he was like, no, that's a shit album. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to know an expert. Yes, exactly. And obviously, you know, I need to do more learning. 
But um, yeah, there's a band called Power Trip that I really like. I think that's speed metal, but I'm not sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm into it. And he's, you know, when he's back in the UK, we're going to go to a metal gig together. And it's a whole, it's a whole new world. I think I just, I, there's something, this is going to sound very snobby. So I'm just going to confide this in you, Eamon, and hopefully no one yeah. else is listening. And the sound of the builders. So doing whatever the, the fuck they the do. The builders won't hear you because they're making <laughs> such a lot of fucking noise. That's true. Um, yeah, hopefully they don't hear me. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want this to get out there. I think I've been mm. quite snobby about metal. I think I've just yeah. thought of it as a pretty uncool genre, really. But then, mm. you know, I watch uh, Heavy Metal Parking Lot and I see the mullets and I see the cut off jorts and the it's vests you. and it's like yeah that's me what's the point in denying it you know um so yeah what's your take i've never heard you talk about metal what's your take well so i've got quite a quite a history with this because um i got a job in a record shop as a, as a, a 16 year old mm. and uh, it was at the start of that second wave of metal like the new wave of british heavy metal kind of stuff mm. that all kind of it, it blew up for the, the second time so not your deep purples and your black sabbaths and all that kind of stuff but the next wave like the post iron maiden years mm. you know and also because it was like sort of late 80s it was all the hair metal stuff as well so i am intimately acquainted with a lot of metal I have, you know, like a, something like a third of the shop's uh, like revenue came through heavy metal. So I, I did the lot. I, I went from, I did, you know, I did Slayer. I did Anthrax. Uh, and then equally, I did things like the Choir Boys, or more like sort of soft rock hair metal stuff. Guns N' Roses released the, the Appetite for Destruction during that time. So it was a big explosion of stuff. And I was not into it when I started my job at the shop and I really thought all of it was awful. Is that because it was uncool? Is that why? I think it's because it's, it sort of allows a level of cliche on purpose. There's no getting around it. Like metal, uh, traditional metal, definitely trades on a cliche. It's like, Big bikers, leather jackets, loose women, the devil, you know, <laughs> power cords, all these things, they do happen, you know. And, and also, you know, the, the, the fans with the cut-off denim jackets and the patches and all that shit. Man, we sold so many patches. Oh, unbelievable. But, you know, it, it is kind of cheesy in its own way. And that was really off-putting to me at the time because I was quite a serious, like, art student mm. <laughs> kind of you know I, I was, I'm listening to Sonic Youth and the dissonant noise don't bother me with your power chords when you keep going through it and you hear you know I was hearing everything mm. and I suddenly had to admit to myself much like yourself that maybe I was just being a bit snobby because especially on the fringes of metal there are some amazing things happening if you think about um, artists who really put themselves out of the ordinary and and create something new. I mean, when I think back, I was really lucky because that was like the birth of Metallica and Megadeth. I loved Megadeth. They, they had like a punk ethos. I think they were kind of my my doorway in because they had a punk ethos. They did a, a couple of Sex Pistols covers and stuff like that. And that kind of made me think, well, I, this must be all right. Come on, give, give it a chance. And then as I got more and more into it, I realised that it's actually... It's a really creative genre. Yeah. You know. It's very virtuoso-led as well, you know. The... Yeah, or sometimes too much for me. <laughs> you know, all that... Yeah, yeah. If I, I, if I never hear another Stevie Vai fucking 
finger tapping solo in my life. It'll be too soon. But great stuff around the edges. Things like, you know, the orchestral madness of Opeth or the insane speed drill of Bathory and people like that. And, and also the one I really love, and I don't know how far you've got into this, but Stonermel is killer. Mm, yeah, have you, have you done much of that? Them. I think you need to. I, oh. I don't know. They might be on my playlist, so I don't want to. So that well, you'd know, you'd know, because there's a band called Sleep who are like the the, the kings of stoner metal, and Sleep their their album, which I think might be called Sleep itself. Um, it's it's an hour long heavy metal riff fest, but it's it's made for people who smoke a lot of dope, and it's like. <laughs> And, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's art, man. It's, it's fucking art. You know, it's, it's like, it's so out there. You can't possibly claim that they are not taking ideas out of their head and making them real for other people. And them and um, Boris and Sun O, that stuff is, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's a real iron product. Yeah. But you have to let the kind of metal sound, you've got to allow it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You've got yeah. to allow it. And uh, that's the same with a lo- uh, quite a lot of, of music. I think sometimes when you only hear the the sort of the little bits that half break through here and there, mm. you can be quick to judge. But if you look in the whole scene and, and, and actually go a bit deeper, you can see, yeah, there are tropes that might might be a bit creaky. But around those, if you allow that to happen, there's lots of really interesting stuff. So um, I, I, I approve of your, your metal stance. And I recommend South of Heaven by Slayer. That is a killer album. Okay. I'm going to consult with Campbell on that one. Is it wrong that I'm 50% attracted to the aesthetic? No. <laughs> as well as the- I, I actually think that's absolutely right. That's a, when I worked in the shop, the, the kids used to come in. And, like, you know, you could see the, the younger ones who are obviously following bigger brothers and sisters. And they'd come in and they'd nervous. They'd look at the patch wall that we had this wall oh. full of different patches and badges. And then they'd kind of... I want the, I want the, I'll have the, the almighty patch, the Wolfsbane patch, and, 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 and the big back patch has got to be Eddie from Power Slave, please. You know, uh, and it's real sweet stuff. But, the, you know, they wanted that look, first of all. Mm. And, and kind of the music was an addendum to that, really. And that's fine. You know, I wanted to look like Peter Murphy before I bought a Bauhaus album. You know? <laughs> the first thing I did was see him on top of the pops and think, I want to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. So why not? And let a little metal into your life. Stride the motorbike, rev it up. Let's go. Yeah. Who knows what's coming next, Damon? Techno? Yeah, I think it's good. I know what's coming next. It's, <laughs> I was going to say, let's play Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf. That's coming next. <laughs> <laughs> Do don't do trance don't do if you're going to do trance do early trance what <laughs> seems like there's a strong objection outside to that as well well I liked that little sound that just came in from the builders because that was literally a piece of heavy metal yep sounds like it If you look through any record collection from the mid to late 70s, there are a few things you will always find. There will always be a dodgy pop hit compilation, often not by the original artists. There will always be at least one ABBA album, and there will always be the best of the Carpenters. 
Now, whilst ABBA have kept the spotlight on themselves with Mamma Mia! the musical, their recent comeback and their holographic tour, the Carpenter's legend has perhaps understandably dimmed in the mainstream since her death. But those record collections testify that Karen and Richard Carpenter were unbelievably successful for the decade or so they were around. Their music is still a staple on the easier going radio stations around the world and their story depicting Karen's tragic descent into ill health through anorexia has been told on TV and on the big screen. But it's high time their musical legacy and impact were reassessed. Thankfully, celebrated musician and author Dr. Lucy O'Brien has written a new book called Lead Sister, which looks into not only Karen's health problems, but crucially, her undoubted and underrated talents as a drummer, musician and singer. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Thank you. Hello. It's so nice to have you here. And it's really lovely to uh, have a chance to look again at the legacy of the Carpenters, because I do feel uh, they slightly slipped away from the mainstream view uh, of uh, the music industry. But they had such an amazing amount of success when they were around, didn't they? Yes, and I think what what I mean part of the reason um, I did this book is because it's uh, this year sadly is is forty years um, since um, Karen died, um, but we thought um, we wanted to kind of celebrate her achievements um, uh, rather than I mean for so long she'd been. Um, represented as a, a fragile victim, you know, the victim of um, the music industry, a, a domineering family, um, as a woman without agency. Mm. Um, whereas I wanted to kind of really explore and find out who she who she really was as a person and as an artist and a musician, it, pretty much in the same way that I have approached my my other biographies, um, in in particular Dusty Springfield, where I was reevaluating her life and legacy and and what she achieved. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing to do with the Carpenters, especially because um, so much of the story it kind of obfuscates uh, what the actual core of the band was about. So we we know a lot about the, the fact that she died of anorexia and she had terrible mental health problems etc but what is often overlooked when we when we talk about uh, the carpenters and especially karen is what an excellent musician she really was she had a, a fantastic feel for drumming she's a brilliant drummer she had an incredible uh, vocal range of three octaves or so and she did some wonderful arrangements and production on her songs didn't she Yes, and um, I think what surprised me, you know, as as I um, started interviewing musicians, friends, boyfriends, people who knew her, um, was how hardcore she was. You <laughs> know, she was a tough cookie, and um, she was very determined and 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 very um, extremely intelligent, musical. She 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 kind of drove that band in lots of ways, just as much as Richard did. Um, and in terms of her drumming. That was the thing, and I, I really wanted to go into that in depth because I thought it's quite fascinating that there's here's a 15-year-old girl. She doesn't put pop stars on her walls. She puts um, jazz drummers, mm. uh, posters of jazz drummers on her wall, you know, like Joe Morello or Buddy Rich. Um, and she takes um, drum lessons with jazz drummers um, in, in L.A., and she's practicing and practicing and practicing. She gets her own kit as, as soon as she can. And that's her identity. First and foremost, that was her identity. Um, and then, and I think that's what really defined her approach to music 
you know, very rhythmic, very on point, perfect pitch, um, and really dedicated. Um, and the other thing that was so interesting as, as I talked to people and kind of and what I do is almost I like being fly on the wall. Um, mm -hmm. So I do interviews with musicians and find out, OK, so what did they do in the studio and get the nitty gritty? And she was there. She was there 24-7. She was there the whole time with Richard and contributing to the decision making about arrangements, particularly vocal arrangements. And But then also... Um, uh, the, uh, around the musicians sometimes she wouldn't say that much and sometimes she would contribute a, a huge amount to um, a recording session so there was real collaboration there um, and uh, uh, and the sense of um, uh, an independent voice you know she mm. had her own vision about what the band was yeah and I think um, especially with Karen Carpenter the the sort of image we were fed uh, by I guess the record companies on the whole it doesn't really reflect that at all. You know, we we kind of led to believe that um, her brother did all the songwriting and the arranging and did all that stuff. And she was the girl who used to drum a bit and then she got brought forward. And in a way, it, it's a bit of a shame that they took her away from the drum set because when we say she was a drummer, this wasn't like a, a passing fad for her. She really studied drums. And as you say, she was taught by some great jazz players and, you know, studied drum technique and all sorts of things, really becoming an expert in what she did. And then sadly, because they wanted someone uh, front and centre in the spotlight, she had to leave that behind, really, in, and move into a place at the front of the band where really she was never that comfortable, was she? Yes, that's true. I, I kind of feel that she was de-skilled, um, that actually, you know, her real um, love and passion uh, w was the drums. Um, she, I mean, she loved singing as well, absolutely, but she was very comfortable doing both, which is quite a rare thing to be able to drum and sing at the same mm. time. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is, you know, uh, we... we I, I remember, you know, I was, I was pretty young when I first saw The Carpenters. Um, and I remember uh, the song, for instance, Rainy Days and Mondays. You know, if you go and look at the video for that, she's drumming and she's singing. And it looks really natural. Um, and it makes the band different, distinctive. Mm. They had their own identity. Um, nobody really had a problem with her drumming and singing. It was only... Um, uh, sort of some rather strange good old-fashioned sexism. We're talking about 1970s sexism, which is, well, you can't really sell the song if, you know, and, and it's not very feminine and, oh, it mm. doesn't, you know, it looks a bit strange. And um, so they take the drums away and then she has to stand up front and she feels utterly exposed. Mm. And I think that that didn't help um, the problems that she had already um, in, in terms of um, uh, feeling... Um, the, the, just to scrutinise, um, mm. and uh, then that that kind of fueled the, the anorexia later. Yeah, and also I think um, you mentioned how involved she was in the recording process itself. Um, when people think of the Carpenters, quite often we think of you know um, close to me and a very simple a piano, maybe a bass guitar, and her voice. And very little else. So, you know, it's a very intimate kind of setting. But actually their sound over a period of time really took on quite a lush quality. And there, there was mm. a lot of, especially with the vocal arrangements and things, there was a lot of um, 
of work done in the studio. I mean, I remember mm. as a kid, I used to really enjoy listening to Calling Occupants from Interplanetary yes. Craft, which is both ridiculous and sublime. But if you yes. listen to that now, I was listening to it this morning, and it swells from yes. this quite small, intimate song into this giant orchestral piece. You know, I think yes. they had something like 160 players on it. And, yeah. you know, not just that song, but all of the later period, you can feel the, the work that she did. And mm. we were never really even told that that's what she did. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's um, interesting to see, uh, you know, certainly in terms of the vocal arrangements, um, there was a lot of her her own decision making there. You know, that's what production is. It's not just someone. I, it's funny, um, uh, when I was doing my book about Dusty, you know, as, as a point of comparison, um, she had a quote unquote difficult reputation. People thought she meddled too much in the studio but basically she was contributing and talking to musicians and making decisions about how she wanted the sound to be that's production um so uh i, I kind of feel with karen that she was contributing to the decision making in a way that she um should have maybe had more more credit um for instance um uh she she loved pushing those vocal harmonies um to the extreme so it's like let's just not just go wow let's just go wow <laughs> <laughs> um so uh she in i think she was quite experimental in in approach and um there was one lovely i found a really um you know, I did a lot of archive work going through radio interviews and finding um, obscure radio interviews that they'd done way back. And there was one where she was completely enthusing about um, being in a choir when, when she was at Cal State University with Richard and um, a, a really experimental vocal piece about the Holocaust mm. that pushed it completely to the edge. And she, But she said it was amazing. She loved that that kind of really almost avant-garde approach. And I, and I think, well, God, that's so interesting. We, 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 you know, the received notion is that um, she was this sort of cutesy pie lead singer um, uh, and, and, and uh, a bit schmaltzy, a bit saccharine. Mm. But there was this whole other side to her. Yeah, and I think it's really important that we uh, go back and look at some of these legacy artists, from, especially from the 70s. Because as you said, I mean, the 70s was the perhaps the high watermark of pure sexism in the industry. It was, it was just that time. And we often only hear secondhand about the work that women did at that time. And, it, you know, it's, it's really good for someone to go back and try and tell the story from Karen's point of view, because I think we, we've heard... Uh, a lot from her brother we've heard a lot from uh, the the music industry as as a standard but we haven't really gotten to the nitty-gritty of her talents and her drive and I think it's a really mm. good job that you're getting in there and and bringing that to us thank you I really look forward to reading the book in full I've dipped in a little bit and it's looking really good um where can we get a copy of the book it's called lead sister and it's the Karen Carpenter story by Lucy O'Brien. Uh, where can we find it? Oh, uh, so you can uh, go to Rough Trade. Um, uh, you can go online or go in the shop and, and you'll get a signed copy. Um, or you can go via Resident or Waterstones, um, any any good bookseller, Amazon, of course. Uh, so, yeah, uh, 
anywhere. Go for it. Um, any, uh, all good bookshops, as they say. All good bookshops, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much for talking to us today, Lucy. I really appreciate that. And I think it's going to be a really fascinating story to read. And thank you for all the work you're doing, reassessing these important people from the past. Thank you. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Today we welcome a composer, producer, musician and label owner who's left an indelible mark on the UK music scene. Over the past 30 years, Jeff Barrow has carved a reputation for forward-thinking audio, from his genre-defining work with Portishead to the gentle psychedelia of Beak and a host of film scores including Annihilation, Black Mirror and Devs. He's mixed and remixed the likes of Gonga, Run the Jewels and Billy No Mates. His production credits include Tom Jones, The Quakers and the Mercury Prize-nominated Primary Colours by The Horrors. Never one to court the limelight, he's quietly amassed a portfolio of incredible depth and influence, and we are delighted to welcome Jeff Barrow to What Goes Around. Hello, Jeff. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I'm very pleased to have you on. It's lovely to to speak to you. And um, yeah, you, I've got a lot of your records in my record collection, so it's going to be a... Oh, good. Nice <laughs> that's, that's, that's always a bonus, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you do... Um, do an interview and it's like who are, who are you again <laughs> i basically just search out people who, who i have records by who go, i want to talk to yeah them. no that's <laughs> a really that's a that's a really good idea really good <laughs> but yeah uh, how are you doing at the moment what, what what's what's going on in in your world what you're working on and stuff uh you know I've, I've always been based in bristol um i've got a studio here and a record label invader mm-hmm. um we we release um soundtracks and people's albums uh, like so at the moment we've just released the billy no mates album um which is flying and um and then we'll do kind of you know the soundtrack of stranger things or blonde by nick cave uh warren ennis um i mean you know it's pretty varied stuff on the label but um so yeah there's that side and then and then uh the beat uh my band beak uh we 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 tour a lot um, but mainly out of the out of the UK, we've just come back from South America at the end of last year. Um, we did Argentina and Brazil, um, and um, and then we uh, and then I do film. You know, I still work on a lot of film stuff. So I did Alex Garland's film Men, um, and I've just we've just literally finished his next film called Civil War, which will be out next year. I was just doing a five point one mix of that for cinema. I mean, you know, it's kind of quite quite a lot going on always um in in my world i i, I try and keep busy <laughs> yeah, definitely. well i had no idea about uh, how many soundtracks you've been involved in and i, I actually loved the annihilation soundtrack that was really really great i didn't know it was you that did it that's actually my main job now mm. uh i i basically started i did i was the music supervisor on on um exit for the gift shop and i wrote yeah. some score for the banksy film um and then, and then, got introduced by someone to um, to Alex Garland, who was making the Dread movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started working on that, but it didn't didn't happen mainly because um, I think they want they they wanted something else out of the movie, and it got to the point where the only thing that they could change 
was the score was the composers right. um it, it sometimes gets to that point and the direction they wanted us to go in i mean i'm a massive 2018 fan and that's the reason i was doing it and then what happened was they wanted to go somewhere else so we kind of walked away and said sorry alex we can't i can't let you know my first score be something i don't want to write you yeah, know especially with something you um, love as well yeah you know and and you know the film was great and then he said look next time i do a film um you're in so we did ex machina um and then and then we've gone through with him ever since and then since then we've done like you know like I said, Black Mirror. I mean, tons, tons and tons of stuff, like, you know, some Netflix stuff. And, yeah, Devs and Ben Wheatley. We did Free Fire with Ben Wheatley and um, Archive 81, which is about on Netflix. And, yeah, just, just, it's kind of like, yeah, like I said, my daily job. And I kind of really enjoy it because it's not songwriting anymore. You know, it's not yeah. songs. You know? is, that, is that nice to get away from that then? Is that a lot of pressure comes? Because, I mean, you've had such a level of success. Again, it must be kind of like daunting to even go back and think, oh, I've got to do that again, and I've got to do it again, and I've got to do it again, you know? No, uh, no, I think that it, it, I've always had the, you know, the, I've always loved the idea of experimentation, you know, mm. um, and and a lot of what Porter said was based on were snippets of film soundtracks anyway. Yeah. Totally. Um, so, so this is just a continue. it's kind of a continuation of that, but I can actually make the whole record instead of, you know, just creating two bars of it to loop for a song, you know, but I, I you know, I mean, not saying that was anything bad because obviously it, it, it's, you know, Port Zed for was, you know, has been in my life for, for many, many years and it's been brilliant, you know. Yeah. And it, it's, it's good the way, you know, a lot of people start and they have a bit of success. They do leave where they came from. And uh, it, it's great the way you've stayed here and made it happen here. And like one of the reasons certainly I moved to Bristol was because um, when we looked around, you know, I'm a DJ, so I was looking for places that love the music. And Bristol is just steeped in it. And, uh, you know, your name pops up a lot, along with a, a few other regular suspects, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's great that you've, you've all stayed. Do you know what I mean? You, you've, you've, you've actually kept things going here and are still, you know, helping uh, local, local-ish um, artists make, make their mark, like Billy Nomates. Yeah, we I get I, I get involved in a lot of bands. Not saying that kind of you know uh, Saint Barrow, but basically <laughs> I I um you know if I if I know a band and they want some studio time, I'll give it to them. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter if they're like a rock and roll band from Fish Ponds or whatever, and they, they want to record them. You know, if I've got spare time, uh, you know, then then they can have it. I've I've done that. I've kind of done that for years, really, and it, mainly because I've known. You know, I go to gigs and unknown promoters, and they've gone, "Oh, have you heard this band or whatever?" Mm-hmm. So, and um, Bristol, to be honest, you, you know, you've lived lived down here for a year or so now, isn't mm-hmm. it? And um, right, yeah. and to be honest, it's a thing when you come down here, you don't want you, you don't want to leave. It's actually, a, I, I I moan about the city, but I ain't gonna live anywhere else. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Unless unless it's like on a beach somewhere when I retire. <laughs> <laughs> But you've got, you've I think got you know it's in Wales, only twenty minutes drive away here. It's fine. No, no, I ain't doing that. Uh, Bristol's a great, a, a, a great city. I, I um, I, I kind of, I know it's, it's, I know I shouldn't really say this, but you know, you get a lot of people moving in who've got money, mm-hmm. um, and like I said, I, I want to su- still support the people, um, that are from Bristol as well, that that are kind of getting missed out a little bit, and it's a kind of. 
something I I kind of strive to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very laudable, and it's a it's a good thing that lucky for Bristol they have you, and lucky for you you have Bristol. I guess that's the. Yeah, I mean everyone's like we've all we've all stayed here. You know what I mean? Beth lives, you know, three quarters of a mile from me. Aids about two miles. You know, it's um, it's not because you're out in the country. I, it's just it's a it's a progressive city as well. I mean, you know, when it comes down to when it comes down to trans rights or LGBTQ rights, in that sense, you know, there, there is, uh, you know, it's all it's it's always been a punk, um, you know movement down here through the music as well you know through through um you know uh all this yeah the pop group and all that stuff you know Mm. he's you know uh mike um mark stewart's basically the unofficial kind of ambassador of bristol (laughs) really (laughs) uh, i mean i love him because what i like about mark stewart is that uh he is both very forthcoming and quite tricksy and troublesome you know, he's, he's, oh, he's really offensive. Yeah, he's got the devil in him. No, care. <laughs> no, because he's a punk. He's a yeah. punk. If 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 public opinion goes too so, so far one way, mm. rightly or wrongly, he'll question it. Do yeah. you know what I mean? He's a, he's an agitator. And if you look at any any artwork that's ever you know like art, music, you know whatever comes out of uh, uh, comes out of Bristol, it's always it always agitates. That's why I love the city. Yeah. I, 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 politically, I love it because it, it, you know, you, you're not supposed to get too comfortable here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hear that. In a sense of like, before someone asks you a question, going, look at you, you're a bit cool, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> or you think you're a bit cool, don't you? <laughs> Do you know what Keeps I mean? grounded. Keeps <laughs> grounded. Yeah, definitely that'll happen. Yeah, that's an important thing to do. You know, obviously your band literally is named after part of Bristol, so it's, it's yeah. obviously very close to your heart. But you also had this amazing—I mean, it must have been like being strapped to a rocket ship, really, because you'd you'd got a, a little project that was going. That, let's face it, was pretty weird and quite out there. And I don't—I think if you'd played it two years before you released it, people would have scratched their heads and wondered what to do with it. And then it really became a, like a global phenomenon. I mean, how was that to ride the back of? Yeah, I, it, it didn't matter what people thought of it. Um, you know what I mean? So, like, whether it had been two years before, I had been making that music two years before. Yeah. Um, so, for me, it was just, you know, um, and I suppose you would say for kind of people in and around this area, it, it wasn't that weird. Do you know what I mean? We yeah. we'd had Smith we had Smith and Mighty and we'd had That's the Wild Bunch, so it, it's not really obviously we you know, wanted to be our, ourselves massively. Yeah, and you definitely yeah. achieved that. You know? But we never, but we never, we never reached for success. Mm. Success was great to have. It's a, you know enabled us to live comfortable lives with our families and so on, mm-hmm. but ultimately it it wasn't. I, I I I promise you now the you know the moment that we were you know like in the charts in America or Germany or whatever it really wouldn't affect us. Mm-hmm. I mean you know our our ex manager would say I cannot believe how non interested you are in the success, <laughs> and I don't and I don't mean that in a cool way because it's not about being cool. It's just it was about achieving 
achieving songs that move people, you know what yeah. I mean, or moved yourself, yeah. or, or you, you're able to... It was always inward-looking um, rather than outward. Yeah. So it just so we were quite happy turning stuff down. The first, the first thing we got asked to do was open the Brits '94 or yeah. something, and we turned it down. It's just like, you know, like I don't understand why. It's because it, you know, it's like, well, it's crap. <laughs> you know, enough. why would anyone want? Why would anyone want to do that? It's yeah. rubbish. Yeah, but I think and that's so one of the reasons why Portishead has uh, like uh, retained its cool, if you like. You know, because you never have courted fashion. So you've never been the type, you, you know, you, you're not the type to go chasing headlines in the enemy or the melody maker as was, um, you know. You, you, well, it's you all just... about blokes. I mean, it was a very male orientated, unless you're a, a, a female singer that kind of like did the sexy thing and slipped into that kind of, uh, you know, indie point drinking girl. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, at that yeah. time. Then basically, I mean, the melody maker says a few nice words about us, you know, but the enemy were never interested because, they're, you know, they were. They're, it's about men. It's a it's a men's magazine basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you if you're a female reader, you you're basically you were you know like I said, you were expected to be a pint drinking football watching. Girl. Yeah, it's the age you of the debt, wasn't it? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it, I mean. You know, ultimately, the other thing is all that stuff was going on in the UK, all the Blur Oasis stuff. And we just really enjoyed going to France and Germany and, mm. and uh, Switzerland or anywhere, really, anywhere other than the UK, to be honest. It was just that, you know, rule cool Britannia bravado. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like your bag, if I'm honest. <laughs> no, not, no, not absolutely. Really you, <laughs> well, no, not, you're not coming Gallagher. from Bristol. On your way up to... to uh, starting your career in music I mean what, what were the things that you listened to when you were young I know it's your first choice for your phonographic memories is The Laughing Policeman by Charles Penrose is that is that a childhood memory that, that sparks that yeah yeah it basically that was the first the first time I ever realised that music um, existed uh, uh, out of out of the universe do you know what I mean um, so because obviously you, I would have heard music in the background before, but as a child, I would have never taken any notice about it. It's like, it's just, you know. But but one day I was, uh, I lived in a little village outside of Portishead for a little while, and um, and I had a village shop, and um, I went into the village shop, and I heard this laughing, this song, and it was and it was coming from a cornflakes cap uh, packet. <laughs> and obviously the obviously the radio the radio was behind it right i was and wondering I was where this just, is going <laughs> and i was like what I was like, what the hell is that And then and it freaked me out because it's a really freaky song. Yeah, yeah. Um, she got a friend who is terrified of it. Every time she hears the laughter start, she has to turn it off immediately, or she has a bit of a freak out. So. No, I know. Yeah, um, my wife Emma's like that with the um, with the hokey cokey. <laughs> yeah. She 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 literally has to run away from the hokey cokey and cover her ears. But um, but um, 
but yeah, and I, I heard it, and I just thought, oh, there's a radio behind there. Mm. And then I just thought, oh, there's a, that's a radio, and it's playing music. Mm. And, and music, so, you know, went to a different song, and I thought, oh, that's a song. And so this is, that means, and then that whole existence of actual music, you know, clicked into my brain. I was only very young, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was kind of the realisation that music wasn't just in the universe that you heard that you danced along to yeah. or sang along to. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it's a thing, and they play it out this box. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it music in your house growing up? Was it a musical place? No, not really. Um, no, it was like proper, you know, it would have been Leo Sayer, Boney M, you know, like... Uh, Top of the Pops, yeah, you know, that uh, kind of would have been it. But strangely enough, we did have a record, we did have a record collection in a box, these singles that my dad owned and my mum owned, and we did uh, have a kind of a dance set, you know, like uh, uh, one from the 60s. Um, and that was, our, that was our record player, you know, that we didn't, uh, later we got a stereogram, a second-hand stereogram, <laughs> which um, I still love now. It's the, you know, the cabinet with the two big speakers in it and yeah. and a radio with the with the vinyl down the side, you know. But um, I miss that age of uh, when stereos were actually bits of furniture as well. Do you know? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and everything yeah. was a beautiful bit of wood and there was a beautiful speaker inside it. That was, that was a golden age. Yeah, I can't, I mean, you know, it, it's weird because about nine I started playing the drums for... Mm. for I started having drum lessons for no particular reason. I'd never shown any, I don't know what. My sister rode horses um, and worked at her stables uh, in her spare time. So, And I was like, right, well, I wasn't into football, so it was kind of like, there's your, there's your <laughs> thing that you're doing. Um, so, um, so, yeah, and then, I, you know, you start buying singles, don't you, from Woolworths. And um, my sister was really into Duran Duran and stuff like that. And then I suppose the first, I, you know, I would have been into Duran Duran and Evan Seventeen and the Police, you know, stuff on the. Oh, sorry about it. It's okay. We love a dog. We love a dog. We love a cat. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would have basically slipped into when I went to school. I moved from the village into my uncle's house um, whilst my parents broke up, and then and then very instantly we got into. I got into kind of breakdancing and. Um, early electro music and that was that was kind of and that but I, I was still in also it was weird because I, I had a dual kind of musical thing like it, I was I was in school bands and mm. and I would play you know soft rock like you know Eye of the Tiger Survivor and <laughs> yeah. kind of that kind of stuff but it, it obviously because I played the drums I would never play electro music because it was just yeah, yeah there's no, drums, no, no real drums no. in it as they used to say no no so yeah, so that was I mean that was pretty standard really of, of a kid in eighty two. Mm. You know I missed I missed all the all the you know uh, I didn't I didn't get into the rude boy stuff. I just didn't, I didn't didn't know anything about it really. I lived yeah. in a village, so I had, you know two older goths lived in the village who were into the cure and that, but and they were seen as kind of the weirdos. You know, yeah. That electro thing and me playing in rock bands was kind of it. So I guess that leads us rather neatly to um, 
uh, your second choice, which is Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. I mean, for a lot of people, I think that particular era of the, the 80s, just as hip hop really started to come up, that was a very different sound to the things that were going around at the time. How did you discover it and how, how did you get into it? Well, it, basically, I, I um, so I was, I can't, I can't remember what year that came out. So, so Bum Rush the Show had already come out at that time, um, which was the first Public Enemy album, which was, was, which was really good. But I was going to, I was going to a nightclub in Bristol for under 18s called the Studio, and I used to get a bus out. A load of us used to get a bus up from Portbethead. Um, and then go into this nightclub, and it would be uh, from you know seven to eleven or something, mm. and um, and it was full of it was basically it was like a massive school disco, but it was kids from all over Bristol, yeah. and and it was proper it was proper casual clothes you know so it was like flecked trousers, mm. you know um, slip on shoes with acorns on them. Do you know what I mean? Like. Uh, uh, the classic loafers and white socks vibe. Yeah, yeah, it was proper, proper us failing to look like that. You know, it wasn't even <laughs> there wasn't even Lacoste or anything. you weren't even like into that. You know what I mean? And um, you were just you're trying to look like your twenty year old brother. Do you know what I mean? Who goes yeah. out in town? You know. So and obviously the the main thing that people went there for was girls and boys, really. Mm. You know what I mean? Like. Um, and it was ran by a guy called Tristian B, who's like, it's been a DJ here for years and years. He's a lovely guy, um, and and he he was the DJ there. And um, so he used to play kind of, uh, you know, like living in a box by is it living in, in yeah living in a box by living in a box yeah, yeah living in a box. There would be um, uh, don't look any further, you know that track. It would be. I, I want to dance with somebody, you know, Whitney Houston. It, it was like a, you know, it was disco. Yeah. Kind of, bit, like I said, a big school disco. But there was always a, there was always a hip hop contingent right. of lads, lads there. And so he would play like, you know, quarter of an hour of like a proper hip hop set. Like, so it would be, it would be um, uh, LL Cool J or whatever and he was really up on his hip hop as well yeah. and i can remember i can remember being upstairs um and then this you've got to imagine as well this is this is a studio nightclub so it's it's mostly holds a thousand kids really right? big yeah yeah holds a thousand kids and the sound system there is crushing it's amazing yeah. it's like super brilliant and um because obviously at the weekend it's a big dance you know like mm. disco club or whatever you know I was stood upstairs. I was getting some chips or something. They had these seats that you could sit around and look at the, like the balcony over. And um, Tristan was on the stage, and this guy comes legging it in. I saw him come in, um, this young black guy, and and he and he had this record with him, and um, and Tristan got it out and kind of flipped it. It was a white label, flipped it, and kind of and queued it up or whatever. And I can't remember what he was playing, some some terrible track or whatever. And he go, and he's just like, and he goes, right, this is for the, you know, this is for the the, the, the hip hop guys. This is for, you know, this is this is a groundbreaker. You know, get ready to the bass, you know, and it kind of did that talk up. Yeah. And um, and and I was like, oh, this sounds sounds like it's going to be good. 
And then he stopped the track and played it, you know, and the intro came in. And he played it so loud that I literally got floored. I, I, I had to sit down. And, and it was such a moment for me. Yeah. I just, I, I thought, right, well, music is, is that now. I'm, I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> this I'm, is this, my calling. This is my calling. Because it was like, it was like a religious experience. It was like so strange. Um, and then, and then I just concentrate, absolutely just concentrate on music from then on. Yes, the rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling, you know it's time again. D, the enemy, telling you to hear it. They praise the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show, bum rush the sound. I made a year ago, I guess you know, you guess I'm just a radical. Because I, I I was a DJ and I'd entered like the, the DJ competition there like six months before, you know, um, scratching and all that kind of stuff. Because I was that age, you yeah. know. Um, but this really just cemented everything that I yeah. wanted to happen in the future. And, and I, yeah, I mean, it was these, you know, political lyric, you know, based on uh, African-American culture, you know, in ghettos in, in America. Like, what did I, I was from Port Z. <laughs> It's funny how that stuff, you know, resonates anyway, doesn't it? it like, because I, I had the same thing. I was growing up in a market town in in Oxfordshire, and yeah. you hear things like that, and it'd be it'd be totally alien. But there's something about it that that you can connect with. And I think um, something else that you, you mentioned just now was like the, you know, you you were kind of lucky to have this enormous club to do. A lot of people on the podcast in the past have talked about. Um, we had Andy Dawson on from Atletico Mints, and he talked about. Yeah, the first time he'd heard proper amplified music was at the fair, and a few people have mentioned that you know because that's one of the few places if you live in a little provincial town where someone comes in and they've got a proper rig. Do you know? What I mean? Oh yeah, you know? and yeah. You, the difference in your brain when you're just kind of hearing music and then when you're feeling it, you know that that I, I certainly well, had moments where it yeah. changed, changed my outlook on on what music should be. Well, Rebel Dirt Pools is basically the funky drummer with another another James Brown saxophone loop. But mm. with every time the bar kind of the four bar hits or whatever, there's a massive sub bass, yeah. which is which is you know uh, unbelievably powerful. So it literally shakes you. Um, and 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 for me, that was you know that's what did it. You're absolutely right about fairgrounds, though. You know, we had them in Portishead and and. You know, it would be you know early. It'd be soul stuff, really. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and pop, those, pet shop boys, isn't it? A lot of those uh, fairground people, because you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't know if it was more of a, a static thing because it, obviously you're near the seaside, but in in our town, 
those fairground people, they would bring music in, the, the underground music that you didn't hear on the radio. You know, they would... Like, the first kind of big reggae things I heard were really in fairgrounds. Certainly the first hip-hop I ever heard was in fairgrounds. And the first acid house I ever heard was at the fair, do you know? So th yeah. their, their kind of nomadic existence, I guess, allows them to sort of pick and choose and find things that, that don't come through the normal channels and bring it. Well, it's, it's no, absolutely. It's exciting. It's really weird because it's, it's obviously, it, it needs to mix, doesn't it? It needs yeah. to be continuous. Um, and obviously kind of, you know, mix cassettes were great for fairground rides. You know what I mean? Because you could have a 90 minute, mix yeah. on both you know it was just would have been <laughs> wicked you know yeah no we we had yeah similar thing with fairgrounds you know what i mean but it was always big fights so between like the local lads and the yeah. fairground kids you know that, that was my overriding memory of the of the fairgrounds it's like running <laughs> running home trying not to get beaten up but you were djing already you say you already like you did you have your <clears> turn <throat> tables or how do you how are you I, yeah no so basically i'm like i said i met andy smith really early on and he had um, a set of decks. But I, I mean, there's a guy called Patrick Hennessy who, who I went to school with. And around the same time as kind of breakdancing and everything else, me, he had a set of disco decks. Mm. Um, and he would go to Bristol every weekend and get a new 12-inch. Or what was really common was that he would have the Electro Sounds album. Of course. With the yeah. Electro. Yeah. So... Uh, which would have all the new tunes on them, like you know, a fair few months later, but on a on a compilation album. So you had, in theory, you could have all those tracks. You know what I mean? Um, so so me and him became like became scratch together. Really. You know what I mean? This used to listen to, um, you know, like those records and uh, DST and and Molly Mal and you know all these people doing scratching, and we kind of. We kind of just used to do it, and then I had, to do, I had a, I bought a deck, so I used to scratch, you know, on a deck whilst with a with a cassette recorder playing, um, you know, and then and then yeah, it, it wasn't until it wasn't until I got my deal with Portishead I actually got a pair of Technics, mm. um, because I could never, you know, no, no way ever afford them really. I mean, even Andy Smith had his disco decks for many years. I think he was still he was playing on 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 Technic decks in Bristol, but still coming back to his disco decks. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what well, I mean? Well, you know, there, there's an uh, old saying in the, in the DJ world, it's like, you're, you're not a real DJ unless you've properly battled an old set of belt-driven decks for a couple oh, of years. Oh, man, I mean? yeah. That's, that's where you with really it, learn to control that platter, isn't it? Yeah, with no faders, you know. <laughs> and, and, but then, so I can't, and it's weird, I carried on, I carried on drumming. Um, but yeah, that, 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 the, the Public Enemy tune. I mean, uh, you know, about after, when we did third, Port Z did third, in, and we played, we did some ATPs and we did a Primavera sound and Public Enemy were playing. And um, we asked Chuck D to join us um, on uh, on a track. And he did it once. And it, uh, he, he did it twice, actually. Um, the second time it worked out really well. The first time there was feedback problems. Yeah. But just... But just meeting him and amazing. it was kind of like I could have easily just given up music then. <laughs> I could have like so the idea of Chuck D actually rapping on on a beat that I had made oh, really and him is. and him digging it is just was just the end because it's like 
I've done my little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there was such, you know, there was such an important band. Like, there's a beautiful documentary the BBC did about hip hop where um, Rodney P basically goes over to America and, and you know meets a lot of rappers. And there's a bit where he's waiting in the room for Chuck D to arrive, and he, yeah. you know, he's a big tough lad. He's a you know he's, he's yeah he's hardcore hip hop head. He wouldn't mess with him. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he's a super fly guy, and he just bursts into tears and he'd like and just you know starts talking about how much it meant to him and yeah. how public enemy as a young black man growing up like totally changed his world you know what i mean and they had that yeah. effect on people they were so different and so i mean like because again they were always voicing for the underdog weren't they so you, you kind of even as a little white kid you, you kind of felt like they were they were the good guys <laughs> well it was that thing you know they did a track with anthrax didn't they yes with, um, yeah yeah you know and yeah. And it was really interesting, I think, because of America and because of what was going on, you know, um, in America at the time. It was very much based on black culture. Mm. And then when they came when they came to Europe to play, they realised the majority of their audience was white, um, and it really threw them. Yeah, I, I've that. seen I've seen documentaries where Chuck T's like, they're all white. Do you know what I mean? And and it was a serious question because they were like, oh no. You know what's happened, you know, but then then they realised, and it changed it changed their their attitude as well, yeah. a lot. Um, and and then since then it's been obviously it's yeah it's the voice of the underdog really. Definitely. Do you know what I mean? Um, I can see how that as well, you know, set you up for what you later did. Do you know what I mean? Those those, those skills. It's weird. The it's, table and all that. it's weird. Yeah, it's weird because I've uh, Paul said is was always seen as one thing but actually was written and meant to be something else mm. um like it's like you know you get people like um well so to a lot of people it was you know it was like after they've been out on pills mm. and come back and chill out record but for us it was it was it was weird because i mean i never going to stop anyone buy one of, buying one of our records but it was always meant to it was always meant to have a message you know Beth's own personal struggles it wasn't like she was singing you know sometimes she sang love songs but ultimately it wasn't it was about struggling with mental health and and um and it was really weird how it got absorbed into you know, it was used a lot on this life, you know, about yeah. that young lawyers. Yeah, I and it was like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I said, I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. I, I, they repeated it not long ago, and I, I totally got why you'd hate it. <laughs> but at the time, I yeah. think it was great because it was one of the few shows that was referencing things like Port Zed and Acid House and Rave and all that. And yeah. There wasn't yeah. much of that in the mainstream, and I was, I was a. No, I get it. That, you know. No, I, I totally, totally get it. But it was just, it was, I think that's why we maybe kind of stayed out of this country a bit, you know, mm. because of the, where it's like Germany, it seemed to, and in France, um, they, they seemed to understand that it didn't have to be punk music or really heavy music to, to, to mean, to mean something other than a love song. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I think the other um, thing about your productions is that, you know, they're big beats, you know, they're, they're actually really danceable. You know, if you put them out loud, 
Sure, if you stick it on in the morning after a heavy night, you can chill and blah, blah. If you put it on a system and you play sour times, that, you know, that, that's, that's a chunky bit of, bit of grinding beats and bass, do you know what I mean? So there's, there's a whole nother way of listening to it, I feel. Well, that was the way of, I mean, that was the primary way of listening to it. There was no other way for us. <laughs> do you know what I mean? People's perceptions is one thing, but yeah. our, our view of it, I was listening to the Wu-Tang. I wasn't listening to Moby. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so that's what's that's what has been like a strange thing about it. It's a bit like when I when I talked to Alex about the beach, you know, um, like Porter said for they're very similar. Um, he wrote the beach to tell to say how disgusting things these people were. <laughs> and people used it as a as a kind of guide to travel you know, Thailand. Yeah, yeah, it um, became like a tourist thing, didn't it? Yeah. It became a tourist thing. Like, literally, remembers he went touring, you know, travelling himself, and there would be people in the airport with it. Like, oh, this is the Bible, this is what you've got to do. And it's mm. like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying these people are disgusting. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Let Which, that art go, though. It has its own life, of, you know. Well, you can't control it. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And I, and I would never intend to. But just... But if I get a chance like this to to, to kind of say what, what we were thinking at the time, mm. that was it. It was definitely wasn't like a chill out fondue dinner with That's your friends. I mean, it's great to hear that. You know, it's, it's it's nice to hear, you know, from you like, how you felt about it because I think it is. I mean, I hate the term, but like, a lot of people say, "Oh, it's coffee table music," but it's not. You know, because it's got serious yeah. content. Like I say, if you put it on something loud, it's going to move you. It's got, you know, it's a powerful thing. It's not... I would... I mean, if anything, you got more powerful and more, like, disturbing as you went on. You know, like, Third is a, is a you know, a shocking record. It absolutely blows me away. Yeah, well, I, it was, you know, it was just to make sure that no one got the wrong idea this time. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. But actually, it's weird. It's because that was our most successful record in America. Strangely yeah, enough, yeah. that was yeah, it was like or or I think it was like number two in the album charts there or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just v- v- very odd, you know. But now I mean, it's like so now I'm you know you know I spend a lot of the time touring with Beak. You know, we've mm-hmm. we've there's three of us. There's me, Billy, and Will. Um, and there's only three of us. We we travel with five people, and and we've you know we'll fly on EasyJet with a couple of cases and go and play somewhere and it's been it's been an amazing thing because i started it in 2009 it wasn't meant to be liked music that was liked mm. really it was music that we wanted to write that we liked and um and getting playlisted like on radio six and stuff and you just and and i'm not like i said i'm not complaining but it was never yeah. really about that but um but yeah we've played half oh, 500 shows if uh, it like t- so many shows over yeah. the years and it's and it's been it's been really good fun and we continue like i said we just come back from south america um in brazil and argentina and we we go to mexico a lot because we've got a good good fan base there yeah. and it, it's just it's it literally is like you know i play drums and sing and and um and it's 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 just really good fun because Portishead have been so so powerful and so, I mean, you know, we made every decision in our careers with Portishead. You know, we had management, but we never trusted them, luckily yeah. enough. And um, and and you know, we had a label that supported us. 
So we could do stuff, but that meant there was a lot of pressure, when, especially when it got really big on us because, yeah. you know, there's a lot of money flying around and, and you're turning stuff down, mm. you know, because you go, well, it's, that's a non-ethical, you know, someone would come along that's really an unethical fashion brand or something and they'll offer a load of money. We're like, we don't, we've got, we can pay our mortgage. We don't need to support your, yeah. your, uh, you know, your, your mink murdering shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, Beak has been, Beak has been totally amazing. We've done like four albums and. Yeah. I was reading today that was my first album pretty much cut like. No, yeah, no, basically it's complete opposite. It's always been complete opposite. Um, so Matt, we had a, uh, before Will, we had a guy called Matt uh, and um, as a third member. And basically we met at an Invader Christmas party and we, we had, did this thing called Acid Test where you bring your instrument and you just play it, you know, like a, mm. you just play jam or whatever. And Billy was there and I said, look, do you guys fancy meeting in a studio one day? And I set up, I set up you know, I, I went, Bill, you play that bass and which was this really horrible bass and Matt play that keyboard and that sim for whatever. And um and we sat down, had a cup of tea, started playing and the first thing we played is the first track on the album. Brilliant. And um and that's how it worked. It was just from sessions over a couple of weeks. And and it was a complete opposite. It came out on my own label. It's complete opposite of everything I've ever done, which was so refreshing, you know. Well, you can see looking at your your choices again. You know, you, you obviously a man who has a really broad range of tastes. You know, you were doing you're doing your rock bands at the same time as getting into hip hop. You, you know, the, the Laughing Policeman was your your starting gun. You know, and your third choice uh, is um, just make it stop by low, which is a beautiful song, it, very much in the indie vein, very, very sort of soft and yet has quite a lot of power in it. Tell us a little bit about low and why that song spoke to you well it's um low are um a very very special band um they're from america they're a three-piece but mainly consist of uh of alan and mimi and mm -hmm. sadly mimi passed away yeah. um at the end of end of last year um and uh w when port zed uh kind of have We've done. We, there's a there's a series of concerts and a festival called ATP, and over the years we've we've booked loads of play, and um, they're amazing people, um, and they've. I mean, they must be on their. I don't know how many albums they've done now. Maybe eight or ten. But they've been going for a long time, and um, they're very. They're just. You know, when when someone says someone's a beautiful person, you know what I mean. It, 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 they really are. I didn't know Mimi. Uh, I know Alan slightly better. Um, I said to me hello to Mimi a couple of times, but I think she must really thought I was a dick, to be honest, because it was at a festival. Like, hello, hello. Um, but they just, they're just um, a band that surpasses all the bullshit yeah. of um, the music industry and and the modern you know media era I, do you know it's really weird actually because i'm not since me was deaf i've still not been able to really go back and listen to her music yet. i just yeah. i'm a bit i'm a yeah. bit kind of sore on that front and, and not like i knew them greatly or um but i can remember um 
you know, listening to their music and, and just seeing them live loads as well. And um, they're just they're just an incredible band. Mimi used to play the drums stood up and it was really soft and gentle and, and Alan plays guitar. And um, I can't remember the other guy's name who plays keyboards and bass, uh, which is a really rubbish thing to say because I should know the guy's <laughs> name. And um, and they they their last couple of albums have been really extreme like in the, yeah, in the production yeah. and, and noise and and for them to be on there how many albums they've been on and um and still be making challenging music and just make it stop um like i said i haven't heard it since mimi died because i've been i just i don't know it's, it's a bit raw really but yeah. um but but if she's she her voice the lyrics the production it's just purity. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no shtick. There's no nothing to it. It, it literally is a beautiful song, sung beautifully, with a beautiful voice, you know. Uh, and and it's kind of in the in the world we're in, the Twitter kind of universe, and the Musks and the yeah. and the Tate and the Tates and the and politically what's happening in this country, the NHS and everything else. It's just one of those moments you just hear pure in. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful record, definitely. And uh, and I totally hear what you're saying about the way they managed to... Because I was kind of aware of them and, uh, and and thought I knew who they were. And then the last couple of albums came out and I was like, wow, that is incredible. And yeah. to be able to spring a surprise and keep your integrity... You know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a novelty or anything. It was just that was the sound they were making at that time. And also, I, yeah. feel, I feel that what you're saying about, like, you know, when you really love a band and you really put a lot of... You put a lot yourself into music that you listen to, I think. I think like, if you really love a piece of music, you're not just actively taking that music. You're putting something of yourself into it. And when yeah. when something tragic happens, like uh, like Mimi dying, or for me it was when David Bowie died. I was a massive, massive David Bowie fan. Yeah, yeah. But I couldn't listen. I remember <laughs> he died, and then uh, I'd already pre-ordered the album, Black Star. And I was woken up at 7 o'clock in the morning by a friend of mine texting me, and he said, uh, you know, just said, Look, I'm really sorry, but Dave Bowie's died. You, you need to turn on the radio. So, you know, I was, you know, properly upset, like someone I actually knew. Yeah, died. yeah. And I was in tears, you know, I'm not afraid to say it. And yeah. Went downstairs and just started playing the music and, you know, going through it and going through my emotions and thinking about what it meant to me as I was growing up and everything. And then suddenly the postman arrived with a copy of Blackstar. And wow. The, I mean, the album art itself, it looks like a tombstone, you know, it's just a big black. Yeah lump of a thing and I I couldn't play that record for maybe two three years I literally couldn't really? listen to it because it was it was too I had so much involvement in in David Bowie over the years when I was a kid growing up I felt like I put a big part of me in there and I yeah. felt like if I played that I don't know I, I, I wondered what would happen I wondered what would happen to yeah me, yeah yeah I, no yeah. I 
I agree. I agree. Um, I mean, it's a, it's an incredible record as well, isn't it? It is. You know, it is. And again, the capacity to change, even after you know thirty five albums, to bring something out that you just thought, where did that come from? You know that that ten minute opener on that album is incredible, and the last track. It, it's really weird that because um, he released he obviously he released singles and stuff and some of it before he died didn't he um, that's right, obviously yeah. he did but but and I can remember hearing it and thinking wow that's you know I I, I hate to say, I mean this sounds a bit weird but this is my production mm. kind of brain comes in but I think him changing his band um, uh, was a massive, massive thing. Yeah. Um, him him using those players yeah. was very, very different and brilliant. Um, I I don't think the other band would have been able to do it. I think no. the other band had, I think, obviously, you know, he's got his festival touring kind of band, do you know what I mean, yeah. that he's had for many, many years uh, with those brilliant players. But this needed something else. And... Yeah. Um, and he was always an and artist it, that would just, you know, he would do it. He would say, right, this is the last show we'll ever play. Now I'm going to do I this. Know, you know, I know. <laughs> and not even tell the poor, band. Poor old Spiders from Mars, isn't it? Yeah. You know, this would be our last gig. You know, he says that on stage, you know. It's like, huh? <laughs> I've just bought a new car on HP. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, what's this? Um, I, mean, I don't know if you know anything more about it, but I've, I've heard that Lowe are now trying desperately to get their masters back from Universal because obviously they can't tour because the band's been split asunder. Um, so they need to make their money from the music. Yeah. So yeah, I, I just I actually last week just tried to get hold of Alan um, to talk to talk to him about it um, because uh, Port Zed went through a similar, not as severe as that thing last year. Mm. Um, so, um, but I've got, uh, hopefully, I, I, I mean, because I went through that stuff, I've got some ideas that maybe could help out. But, um, but yeah, uh, hopefully, I think there ultimately needs to be a campaign just to, yeah. just to go, look, get, get out, give them back. You're not doing anything with them. Just do it. Yeah, you do know. the right thing. For um, us, you know. But you know, you're they're, they're a multinational media company. You know, then they, you know, they, 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 most of their kind of talent searches now are based on TikTok. So it's, mm. it's, you know, the concept of, um, of being fair and just or towards eyes. You know, uh, is the well, well, well left the building some years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll certainly um, uh, encourage people to get behind that campaign for sure, because you know, yeah, I'm not too sure what they're doing yet. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, they'll do something or other. You know, before you go, I've got to ask you a couple of questions about what I, one of my favourite albums of the last twenty years, which was the Horrors Primary Colours. Um, oh right, yeah. The, the production on that album was absolutely out of this world. I mean, for me, it just. Everything I loved growing up in post-punk world, you know, bits of My Bloody Valentine, bits of Can, you know. Yeah. And yet, the, even even broader than that, things like the, the production on Who Can Say, which it actually just sounds like a Motown record to me, but sung by goths. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, who would have thought that would have worked anyway? I mean, but that is a real, I mean, for me, that's one of my favourite albums of the last two decades. And uh, what was it like to work oh, on geez, that? Yeah. And how did that come about? Um, 
I I knew them through their publicist, who's a really good friend of um, uh, my wife M, and um, and uh, so so and so so we we kind of said hello a few times, and and uh, they seem like really nice guys and that. Yeah, they came to me, and I said yeah, they're like I, I I you know I'd be up for that, and I listened to the demos and I thought they were really cool. And then I I basically I brought in a guy uh, called Craig Sylvie, who is a uh, a, a, an amazing producer stroke mixer by himself i knew that you know and we we'd worked on third together mm. um in a in a sense of like he can control when when my you know sonic stuff gets out of control yeah um yeah. he can actually go look there are people that need to kind of earn some money from this do you know <laughs> somewhere down the line so you know um and and we worked really well together and and to be absolutely honest they they had all the sounds the album before was like very sharp short little punky yeah, there was yeah, no was, subtlety yeah. in the first album so the no. uh, that's what i was really interested in is like the change that came about in that in that second album they're massive music fans yes, they are yes, massive yes. music fans they're, they're brilliant djs all of them dj mm. um not one of them hasn't got an incredible record collection, you know, or or know the most amazing music. You know, you get Faris DJing, mm. or you get Tom, or you get, you know, uh, Joe, and, and then obviously, you know, I mean, you know, um, they're, 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 they're totally, but they've run clubs. They would know so much about, you know, they know so much about free beat and reggae, um, you know, uh, it's and electronic music. They're really into house music, like really early I remember it was out in Denmark or something, and they were, the Horrors were playing a, a club show, a club DJ show, and the I wasn't a big fan of of house music past 1990, mm. and um and there's all their stuff was like I will house you and and house nation and yeah. like absolutely mental stuff, and I'm like wow, how do you know this stuff, you know? Um, so when it comes to the album, it was actually very simple because they 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 were so knowledgeable about music and and they've been in this little room and and recorded and they did one track i can't remember who it was with the chris cunningham produced one track I think that's right, yeah. um yeah which was really mental that how he did that so i mean yeah and it's really weird because it I, I produced a, an album with adrian from port said uh, the coral mm. um uh the corals record and uh, invisible invisible invasion and they are exactly the same. They are massive music heads, and it's you. It's it, you're not actually stretching to find ideas. You're actually trying to you're trying to stop them all of them coming in at once. You know yeah, what I mean? Because yeah, that it's makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can see that. So so much influence and so much great ideas. Like you know, the Coral used to do these these compilations called the the Cave. I think that was I think that was them and um, by Ian the drummer. And, the, and I discovered so much music that I then used and took to third. Yeah. You know, like bands compilations, you know, are just are the best thing. They're like the secret ingredient, you know <laughs> what I mean, that get passed around and you all vibe off each other, you know. Mm. Um, it's really it's really interesting. But, yeah, that was a good record to, a good record to work on that. And, yeah, and, and I'm it, glad when it came out, it got the applause it's, it deserved because yeah. I've never it been was angry a great at record. the Mercury Prize committee for not giving it the prize. I was 
I was raving. I had a tenner on it, actually. <laughs> who, who, who won it? Oh, who won it? was it? Oh, it was... Yeah, I can't remember now. It wasn't the end people year. It was someone else. <laughs> the end people year. <laughs> Arctic Monkeys. Arctic Monkeys, I expect, wasn't it? Or something? Yeah, something like that. But anyway, it so, wasn't, wasn't the right one. wasn't wasn't your one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, oh, the, well. the, the way they fused electronics and... And guitars, you know, a lot of guitar bands occasionally stick a bit of electronics in there, and it doesn't really work because they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really understand what club culture is. But as you say, it's, it's their knowledge and their understanding that allows them to do that. And, and oh, they were massive clubbers. Yeah. I mean, huge club heads. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like massively into techno and early electronic music. So. It totally made it totally makes sense, you know. They're ultimately they're DJs almost before musicians. Do you know mm. what I mean? Really, those guys, which no one would think. They were just thinking, oh, look at them with their stupid haircuts, you know. <laughs> That's the thing. I, mean, I, I remember the first time I went raving. I was a goth as well, and the first time I went raving, I went in skin tight, you know, black jeans. Yeah. And I spent the entire night sweating and trying to pull them back over my ass because they get rolling down. <laughs> So, but uh, you look at the shaman. You look at people like the shaman. Yeah, you know, yeah totally. like that. That there, there's always been that side of um, of of rave culture. Goth, well, I guess you know. a lot of it comes from that electro body music from Belgium and Front Two Four Two and all that sort of stuff. There's a big crossover there. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Jeff. I I literally could go on all day talking to you. It's been real joy. No. I've really enjoyed listening to your your stories and your influences. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me on. Around. No, it's our pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. No, no. Uh, yeah, and good luck in the future with uh, more oddballs you get bringing <laughs> to ramble on. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lengthy list of oddballs that we want to we want to drag onto the show. But um, we're really glad Brilliant. that you are one of our oddballs. And thank you very much for talking to us today. All right, well, look after yourself. Thanks for having me on. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay. I'll speak to you later, man. I know a fat old policeman. He's always on our street. A fat and jolly red-faced man. He really is a treat. He's too kind for a policeman. He's never known to frown. And everybody says he is the happiest man in town. <laughs> Hello listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and we really hope you did and we assume that you did because you've made it all the way to the end, please hit like and subscribe. It helps other people to get wind of the podcast Uh, or you could just tell a friend how much you enjoyed the pod, Uh, let them know, send them a link and get them to like and subscribe as well. Uh, That would really help us out and uh, surely you want to help us out. So dig deep, like, subscribe, share. We love you. He never can stop laughing. He says he's never tried. But once he did arrest a man and laughed until he cried. Ah! <laughs>